What you're going to hear about today is nothing short of a miracle. It's dramatically new, made possible only through years of research, inventions, and innovation. Nestled somewhere between spiritually engaged, thoughtful, ambient, alternative rock, and the progressive edge of modern worship music is an independent pursuit known as Young Oceans. If you've been listening to our weekly Spotify mixes, you've heard their lush, compelling sounds many times over the last couple of years. But if you've been following the sacred indie scene, you'll have heard their name and their songs for the last decade. They have labored in the same trenches as artists like The Brilliance, Gunger, and John Mark McMillan, and have developed a passionate following for their atmospheric, liturgical take on spiritual songs. If you have not been tracking with that scene, however, but you are a fan of textured, evocative music with devotionally driven lyrics that never veer into cliches or slogans, then keep listening. I know you're gonna dig this. John J. Thompson, and on this episode of the True Tunes Podcast, I sit down with Eric Marshall, the chief songwriter, vocalist, and ringleader of Young Oceans, and part of the new creative collective known as Color Vault. Although I met Marshall in passing many years ago when he did a solo set at the Cornerstone Festival, he got on my radar in a big way when he launched Young Oceans in 2012. I was still at Capitol Publishing then, and several of us there were fans. In fact, it was one of my co-workers, Matt Ewald, who now works over at Centricity Music, who first hipped me to Young Oceans. I've been a fan ever since. Spirit 
bit later, we'll crank up the True Tunes jukebox and take a listen to one of the most enigmatic, fascinating, and at times cryptic sacred music groups of all time. Back in 1985, Liverpool's revolutionary army of the Infant Jesus created a deeply atmospheric sound that wove together elements of folk, world music, new age, and what would much later be called post-rock as a tapestry upon which to deliver melodies, lyrics, and word pictures from a decidedly sacred, even ancient perspective. After a long, equally mysterious hiatus, the internationally beloved group returned with new music and an expanded lineup. We'll do a career-wide survey of their impressive catalog as we think about a different kind of alternative worship music from a much different era. Don't go anywhere. We'll explore the creative and spiritual journey that delivered Eric Marshall to this uniquely effective artistic moment with Young Oceans and Color Vault, and we'll delve into some of the stickier issues surrounding worship, music, church, business, and art, right after we take care of a little bit of housekeeping. We're back with the True Tunes Podcast. As a true veteran of both the sacred and, as he calls it, profane music worlds, Eric Marshall has ideas, opinions, and perspectives that give him a level of humble wisdom worth hearing. He invited me to his studio, which we found out happens to be in East Nashville, about a mile from my house, so we could actually do this interview in person. Eric Marshall, thank you for joining us on the True Tunes podcast. Thanks for having me, man. And thanks for letting me come over to your awesome creative hive over here. My lair. Your lair. I like to, when it's possible, uh, go into people's spaces because you get a feel for their their creativity, their you know the ambience of how they set up their spot. So this yeah, is a cool spot, man. Thank I, you so much. How long have you been in Nashville? I've been here four years. And before that, you're a New York guy, right? Yep. So why don't you tell me your your background, your story, you know, how did you, you know, your musical background and how this came about? Sure, man. Man, the story's getting harder and harder to tell the older I get, because um, I keep forgetting things. <laughs> uh, yeah, man, I mean, I, I, I was just thinking the other day, I literally 20 years ago, I had that moment that maybe so many musicians can relate to, the moment where I said to myself, whoa, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I was in a little band in college. I was just like one of a couple guitar players, and I wasn't even really writing, or at least we weren't playing any of my songs, and I was a total hack. But our bassist, his dad, had a little studio near our college, and we drove there one weekend and made a home recording. And we were listening back on a cassette tape in one of our cars, and I j it just blew, literally blew my mind 
the first time I heard something that I had done recorded. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, I turned to my, all the guys in the band, I was like, this is what we have, like, yeah. kind of like freaked out. Yeah, I was yeah. like possessed. I was like, this is what we have to do. Like, yeah. are you guys in? And I remember at the time, like, being confused that they weren't as excited as I was. <laughs> right. That was, like I said, 20 years ago. And, and honestly, I've, I've never lost that kind of spark, particularly with recordings, where I just, I wake up, and more often than not, the thing that kind of gets me out of bed is this idea of finding something out of nothing mm. in a recorded form. So I did what a, lot of, what a lot of people do. I played in bands just that kind of were readily available or like friends like you know your roommate plays plays a guitar or sings hey should we start a band later let's start a band you know i had three or four of those in college and i just kind of thought i was just a guitar player at least that was kind of what i that was how i got started i played a little bit of piano growing up and played some band instruments but really got hooked on guitar from high school on and finally was in a band that was kind of chugging along in pittsburgh pennsylvania i went to school north of pittsburgh and we had been together for about three years and made a demo and started playing some showcases in New York. And it was that we made like a hi-fi demo with some like legit guys. And it was, you know, all happening. And the lead singer quit. And uh, it was a female lead singer. She was amazing. And that was the moment where it was like, it was a big test of my commitment. You know, um, I remember sitting with the bass player who literally was in tears because he was convinced that this was the end of his musical career. <laughs> we were like 20, <laughs> right. 21, you know. Yeah. And he's freaking out, and the drummer is also freaking out, because he's like, we thought that maybe he was going to want to quit music too. And, and I remember thinking, absolutely not. Like, like what are we going to do now? Like, we're going to have to just figure out the next steps, you know. And I realized at that point, I'm just going to have to start singing my own songs, which was like the scariest thing imaginable for me at that point. So I told the bass player I was going to go get voice lessons, and I did. I got voice lessons from a classical teacher in mm. Pittsburgh. She was a opera teacher. She used to smoke cigarettes during the whole lesson <laughs> and tell me she was always yelled at me because she told, told me I was always fidgeting too much. Uh, she was amazing. Uh, she just did her fidgeting with a cigarette. <laughs> yeah, she was just literally <laughs> smoking at the piano doing scales. And I still, I still do vocal exercises that she recorded oh, sure. for me. Or she made it, put it on a tape, and that's I, I ripped that onto a, like an MP3 years ago. Yeah. That's still the vocal exercises I do every morning. So, wow. thank you, uh, Mrs. Forsyth, where, wherever you are. She's probably long gone. <laughs> so I did the voice lessons, and I got. I this was back in those in those days where credit card companies would send you those nasty checks. You'd get like ten checks. Oh right. And so yes. you know, it used to be like you could just. Fill them out and deposit them, check. and boom! And you then all of a sudden, you owed them a bunch of money. Yeah, but right. you didn't think about that when yeah, you're 21. Right. Um, right. It, it was like you could pay your utility bill, right? Basically on a credit card. Right. I went and and wrote a check for five thousand dollars, which was just like an enormous sum at that point, to make a demo of my own songs with some guys in in, in they had this the studio in Central Pennsylvania. And that was my big shot. I just went at it was me, it me and and some of the guys from the old band. And uh, but I was going under the name Eric James, which is my middle name. Slap a picture of myself on the front of the demo and was playing around Pittsburgh. And amazingly, a guy came along from New York who was um, was a big A and R guy at a label who got let go because the labels were paying all those guys too much, and so they fired them all during the Napster. Right. You know oh crap, music business is, is failing days. Right. 
and he signed two artists. He signed me and another artist from Pittsburgh hmm. to what was called a developmental deal. It was a three-year production deal. And the idea was he was he, he saw something, some kind of spark in me and wanted to help me be a better songwriter and or, or rather like go get songs, go get some hits or like co-write some hits and take a crack at like the, you know, pop thing. Right. And so we did. Uh, he sent me basically on a, th- I, I, looking back, it was like a three-year master's course right. that I didn't really, I didn't really value enough at the time. Now I look back and I realize what a punk I was and how insecure and how I could have taken advantage of it so much more. Right. But he, he hooked me up with probably 25 or 30 co-writes, which, which with some of the, like the biggest, most successful pop writers at that time. And it was during that phase that you played at Cornerstone. That's where we first connected. Exactly, under the name right? yeah. Eric James. Right. That, yeah. But it wasn't, you weren't being positioned, if I recall correctly, as like, like a core, like a CCM artist. You were a mainstream. No, kinda, not at all. Right. It was I just had, Cornerstone had a lot of that, you know. They just kind of had stuff, me, right? and, and my ma- I had a manager um, who, who's, who worked with me even, even up until just recently, a good friend, who was managing some Christian bands. He was managing, remember the Lonely Hearts? Oh, yeah. Um, he had the lonely hearts and he had love drug, right? but I'm, I'm sure I wasn't a terribly inspiring show. Um, what I recall was just that when I connected with you a couple years later and it was young oceans, mm -hmm. but I looked at your name and I looked at your face, I was like, I'm pretty sure he played at Cornerstone, Yeah, but I didn't remember the name young oceans. And so I was trying to, and also I didn't remember it at all being, uh, overly spiritual kind of thing but the thing that did strike me was every so often you'd hear an artist that sounded very very professional and you could tell okay this person has been working harder than most has had more experience Mm. and i think that what i'm hearing you say is that that wood shedding experience of being out there for a few years it built some muscles up in terms of performance in terms of uh charisma and i would hope so i mean i I wrote with the guy that like wrote Madonna's hits for her right. with her, you know what I mean? And, and I was, it was like an out of body experience. Like his name is Patrick Leonard and I was a total waste of his time. He didn't need to be doing it. <laughs> and, and I don't, I don't think I was very helpful in the process. And he probably emailed with my A&R guy later being like, please don't ever send me a moron like that again. But for me, it was, it was the biggest thing about that time was I realized it was a really painful realization. I realized, oh crap, I actually don't know how to write a chorus. Right. And 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 I would have the same experience every time with the, with those. Where I would bring an idea in, and they would go, "Cool, your what you think is the chorus is actually probably a pre-chorus." Right. And I'd be like, ah, again, you know. <laughs> so that was that was kind of like it took me three years to kind of be able to. Um, kind of, I don't know, have the humility or just or just the eyes to kind of realize like. It's it's probably not there yet. Mm. That song is probably not there yet. You know, so that's always kind of been my mode. It's like, if you think it's there, it's it's probably not there. Kick me in the face. I may not sleep for days, but that's okay. I got you on my mind. And now we're a disgrace, and you don't know what it means. Well, that's a lie. You just came down off your high.
So then how did that transition into Young Oceans? That's the part that I never saw coming, and that's the part that I was never looking for. So eventually, Eric James turned into what um, originally was called The Early Hours. That was the name for this this pop idea that I had. Uh, after my production time ended, um, I, I basically spent a year or two in New York completely lost, and, and I, I had that terrible kind of interim time where I wasn't able to tell people anymore, oh, I'm signed to this record deal and I'm out there, you know, working on something. Right. And so I found myself in New York waiting tables and catering and bartending and doing whatever I had to do just to pay bills and asking myself the question, am I an artist anymore? If someone else isn't calling me an artist, am I an artist like in my own heart, you know, or is it what I want to wake up and do? And so uh, that was kind of a, a desert time for me, but it was it was a gift because I kind of I realized after floundering for about six months a year, actually I have I have a lot that I want to put on paper. I have a lot of sounds and, and and ideas in my head, and I just began writing and writing and writing. I wrote probably twenty five songs, not for not to be you know shown to some A and R guy, but just for fun, and that eventually turned into this thing called the Last Royals. Okay, so I linked up with a drummer. His name is Mason Ingram, who now literally lives across the street. <laughs> cool. Um, and then we got we got signed to a little label in Brooklyn called um, Ooh La La Records. It was a super hip label. He had done like some, just some kind of like in that age of like MGMT, everything coming out of Williamsburg, Brooklyn. That's where this label was based. And somehow we kind of got like stamped as being this New York cool thing, even though that wasn't quite exactly what I had embodied at that point. I was honored to be kind of like thrown into that group. But at that point I was married and I had a kid, you know, and and, and we were suddenly kind of like a part of this pretty hip indie scene and, and that was a lot of fun. That became like my my new musical world, um, except for the fact that during my time in New York, my day job, was I was leading worship at a church called Trinity Grace. Did they just hire you because you were a good guitar player, or did you have sort of a spiritual journey that had kind of prepared you to even be to want to lead worship? So there's this whole parallel story to all this, which is that I, my first job out of college, my first legit job, other than waiting tables, which I've always done that kind of stuff, <laughs> but like my first musical job was I got hired to be at, at a big church in Pittsburgh to be like the middle school and high school basically worship leader like I would lead the kids in worship with like kids playing the music and I would kind of like teach the kids how to play rock and roll guitar and even drums which is and so I was a worship leader for years and years but that kind of got that kind of got a little bit tabled during those years of the production deal that I had you know Mm -hmm. so by the time we moved to New York it would have been 2006 or 7 I also had a, a major transformation of like my involvement in the church community. I had never like lost my love for the Lord in those years. I just didn't know how to be a part of a community. And we were totally, my wife and I were totally disconnected when we lived in Philadelphia. Through no one's fault. It was just our own kind of laziness or apathy or whatever. So we got connected with this this young, burgeoning, and, and kind of exciting community. It was called Origins at the time, and eventually became known as Trinity Grace Church. 
And the music director there was really into my pop stuff. Like he, he loved this stuff that was soon to be called The Last Royals. And that's actually what got me involved with them musically. He asked if I would come and help them write and make a record. And so the whole time I was trying to take a crack at the pop thing with this label in Brooklyn, we were chugging along at Trinity Grace and beginning to write our own songs and beginning to, di- to discover what's it going to look like. We used to say, we had this little phrase like, what is our contribution to to this sort of great work of, of the praise of God? You know, So hmm. that was all kind of happening simultaneously. Interesting. Yeah. So after being at that church as a worship leader, that's when Last Royals evolved into Young Oceans? No. So, <laughs> I'm it, trying to track with it's you. It's so confusing. Yeah. So I was just a me- basically I was just like doing whatever came my way. Um, the, the way I look at it is this: I've always separated the two in my mind. I've always had over here the pop thing, you know, or the sort of profane thing, if you will. And over here, I've always had the nice churchy thing, the sacred, the sacred thing. Right. And don't let those two touch. Ah. And, and I'm saying that's not a good that I did that, <laughs> right. okay? Unfortunately, for whatever reasons, that's kind of how my mind put those two things. And so people would ask me, and still to this day, well, what kind of music do you do? And I still find myself going, well, I do, I do this, and then I do this. And I, and I still have a lot of trouble just saying, this is what I do. Right. You know, I'm, I'm literally still working through that. But the pop thing for me was a really strong desire at the time for me and and a lot of it was just natural like all artists just want to hear have their music be heard and they want to and i was really enjoying the live aspect at that point where young oceans got involved is i had been writing a bunch of church songs um that we were recording just under the name trinity grace church and they were a lot of them were like the in that hymn style or we were taking a a known hymn and adding a chorus you know that whole (laughs) thing um, which was a lot of fun and, and honestly a great way to start. Like, why not? Like, um, I got, someone had turned me on uh, years and years ago to the Gatsby hymnal, which was a huge turning point for me because it, I look at it like it's it's hundreds and hundreds of like B-side hymns. Right, lyrics. <laughs> just, yeah, yeah, just right. but just lyrics and no musical notation at all. And they're all public domain. And so you can basically just snatch and grab whatever you want and put a new melody to it, you right. know. And I, I just, I was so inspired by that because I didn't really consider myself um, qualified to to be writing liturgical music at that point. Um, I still don't really consider myself qualified, but so it was a great entry point. So I was doing the church writing, like I said, mostly the hymn, like hymns and hymns with choruses. And basically, what I discovered, and this is exactly at the time that the that the pop thing was trying to get on its legs. The thing that blew my mind was like, oh my goodness, I love this pursuit. I actually really loved the challenge of trying to write these prayers, these musical prayers. It was a a real breakthrough because I had had kind of two competing feelings about church music up until that point in my life. One, I hated all of it. Uh, and I didn't want anything to do with CCM. I, for me, it was always just cheesy, untouchable, don't go there. We can get into that later. Right. Um, I think you pretty much just said it all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but a lot of that was just cultural just baggage attitude, and right. just, yeah. you know, and whatever. Limited perspective, probably. Totally. Um, and then the second thing was almost, it was a kind of a paradoxical um, concept, which is 
I was really afraid to try to do it myself because every time I attempted to write like a Jesus song, I realized how hard it was. Right. And Mark Bird talks about this. Yeah. He's like, it's a lot harder than you think. <laughs> These are not easy to do. So I got a little taste of, of what, it, what it's like to write a song in, th- in the tradition of the psalmist. Really, all my, all my songs are basically just transcribing psalms anyway. Um, it's all it's all there but when I got that taste and that sense of like wow this has dare I say eternal value (laughs) and I don't mean in in the long scope of time but like eternal as in the sense of like kingdom value now like this this, there's something about this art that gloriously doesn't point to me at the end of the day that was a new experience right a brand new experience and I, I became immediately hooked on that idea, ironically. Having spent so much time going through the ringer of, hey, even if you got a hit, you now need, now, now need to go into the world and sell yourself and sell your, your face and your, your, your image and your, your whole darn being right. to support this little pop song that you wrote, like, which was always just something that was incredibly uncomfortable for me. We're going to step away from my conversation with Eric Marshall for just a bit so we can take care of a little bit of housekeeping, but we'll be right back after this. A couple of things you can do, maybe even right now while you're listening, that will really help us a lot are to leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts and to follow us on the other social platforms. Reviews at Apple actually push out to dozens of other podcast delivery and discovery sites. So when you offer your encouraging words there, they can end up being seen all over the place and that helps new people find these conversations. Also, you can find me on Twitter at John J. Thompson, on Instagram at TheOnlyJJT and at TrueTunesMusic, and on Facebook at TrueTunesNow. It's getting more and more difficult to cut through the noise out there so your follows and likes actually matter and nothing is as powerful as you taking a few minutes to email, text, or even call a few of your friends to tell them about the show. Thanks. Oh, and drop me a line and let me know what you think as well. If you have ideas of people you'd like to hear featured on the show, I'd love to hear them. And most of all though, thanks for listening. I know that for some of you, signing up for an email list feels like joining the Columbia House Record and Tape Club so you can score some free 8-tracks. But believe me, it is important. If we can communicate directly with you, we won't have to pay middlemen like Facebook in order for you to see our posts. Plus, sometimes we send out articles or interviews between episodes of this show. And we have been doing some really fun giveaways as an incentive. It's super easy to sign up, and we will not sell your personal info to anyone ever. Find the form right there on the front page at truetunes.com, and make sure to add my email address, jjt at truetunes.com, to your contacts so that our messages don't get caught by your spam filters. Sign up today. Thanks. Okay, back to my conversation with Eric Marshall of Young Oceans. It is interesting to me that you kind of have to get to the end of yourself, especially if you're a creatively driven person and you've got some chops and some experience. You kind of have to run that road to a certain extent before yeah. you can get on the real highway, <laughs> you yeah, know, where these right. things are can merge. But 
once you started to integrate this alternative uh, experimental ambient kind of style of music with these sacred lyrics that have some sort of intent you're you're writing them it seems for congregational and personal spiritual purposes right that's is that an accurate way to describe Absolutely. young oceans yeah that was that was certainly how the the initial batch of songs originated yeah were they songs that you some of them they might have originated or they they sounded one way when you sang them at church but then when you record them you kind of reinterpret them because you just enjoy the process of doing them differently in the studio yes Uh, so that that was kind of the the weird thing about how it started six or seven of the original record had been recorded under the name trinity grace church oh okay so they were kind of written like on purpose for this what you'd call that kind of americana hymn style easy to sing in two or three parts that kind of thing and so when the opportunity came along to make what became known as Young Oceans, and it had no name, it had no, it had no goal other than, like a, a, a friend of mine was like, "Hey, I'd love to, sort of kick you off and, and help, like, help kind of jumpstart financially, a new recording project." And I, and I tried to talk him out of it because I was like, "Dude, well, we're already, we already recorded them." He's like, "Nah." He's like, "I think there's something else here." Amazingly, this is a guy who's a businessman, and um, I said, "Okay." Then I kind of got real honest with myself, and I thought, the truth is, I like these songs, and I and I believe in 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 these lyrics and these melodies. But like, the way that we had recorded them to date with the church is not at all. I wouldn't go and listen to it. Right. Just put it that way. I, I didn't want to go listen to it. I was like, yeah, we did it. Sounds nice. Great. Move on. It was that kind of like utilitarian recording idea. Like maybe churches will hear this and then and go then do it themselves. Wanna, right. It's a demonstration of how the song right. could go at your community, you know. Right. It's exactly what it is. So then I, I started thinking through, like, no, like, what if, what if I let these two worlds of mine actually meet for the first time? Yeah. What if I made a record with my friends that was literally note for note what what we would want to listen to? Jesus, mighty King of Heaven, Thou, O Lord. What are some of the influences or reference points that you had going into it in your head? We were really purposely pulling from a few main like records when we first got started. The, the biggest thing was that we were pulling from was was the Raising Sand record. Oh, yeah, gosh. Robert Plant, right. Alison Krauss. All of the guys that we were making that record, particularly the producer, his name is Mike Beck, we were obsessed with that record and yeah. would study the sounds. And Honestly, that was there were so many moments where we were like, pull up Raising Sand, what, what did they do? What would T-Bone do? Yeah, what would he do here? And a lot of a lot of that was like how we treated the guitars. and But like ha- particularly having like always a male and a female vocal, but not like usually avoiding three parts, keeping it to two parts is a thing that they do on Raising Sand. So it's like, it doesn't have that hymny feel, mm-hmm. but it still has that kind of Americana. And then ironically, we, we tried to mash that up with um, Actung Baby, basically. Oh, interesting. Yeah, uh, okay. those were like yeah. our two. So a little like Brian Eno, Lanois. Daniel Lanois yeah. kind of 
yeah. atmospherics meets the earthiness of a of a T-bomb brunette. Those, Interesting. Those, those were our two worlds. Okay. Yeah. Now, had you ever heard of any of the alternative worship groups from the 90s or 80s, like the Violet Burning or anything like that, that had come along before you? I had heard of all that stuff, but I I never listened to any of it. No. Interesting. Very little of that stuff ever had any industry success Mm -hmm. other than, you know, the the tribe that gathered at Cornerstone. Those Mm -hmm. artists really struggled to connect. But the first time I heard the first song on the first Young Oceans record, I immediately thought, Oh my gosh! It's like there's going to be more stuff like the Violet Burning, you know. And, so cool. Um, and then I thought I remembered when I met you at the time you came around and you were working with Matt Ewald or something, you know, mm-hmm. the guy that I worked with at Capitol. And I mentioned that, and you you weren't very familiar with the Violet <laughs> Burning at all. And I realized that people ten years younger than me and younger just had never heard of so much of that music. It just hadn't the choir. I'd heard of the choir because my yeah I I knew of the choir but I hadn't listened to them I I, my former manager was a big fan of the choir but remember this is like pre Spotify days where like you couldn't just go check stuff out right Um, and it was all out of print it was all like hard to find yeah Yeah. so there's this whole other world and then there's this this it ends yeah there's no access to it and then there's this new generation that you're kind of at the front edge of did you know of anybody else doing kind of alternative sacred music when you started doing it where you did you feel like you were part of a scene or a community or did Not you feel all. kind of on your own no we felt completely alone um but that wasn't really a problem that right. actually in some ways fueled us right um it's also important to note that like the band was the same band was the pop band it was le- the last royals were the guys that i pulled in to play on this on the on the young ocean stuff it was like Okay, who plays? Okay, you're in. You're now in this thing. You know what I mean? And they were all like, "Okay." <laughs> right. So there was no grand plan, you know. And right. and the producer, at the time, was not even a Christian. It's his story, but he is now, which is a whole crazy, beautiful, wild thing. But like at the time, um, the guy that produced the Young Ocean stuff had never heard any Christian music ever in his entire life, except maybe on accident flipping through the dial when he was driving in the South. You know. So he had no context for either what to shoot for or what to avoid. And that's exactly what I wanted. There was no baggage musically about it, any of it, you know. Right. This was a couple years in, but like John Mark McMillan was, was, was I think, shooting for some of the th- same things that we were. But he had been going for a while. The Brilliance was just getting going. Oh, did they go back that far? Yeah, they do. They were just getting so Gunger, because Gunger was also starting kind of around that time. Yeah, we 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 kind of got to know each other. He eventually moved to New York, and we we've now collaborated on some stuff and written together. And but it was pretty it was pretty sparse. It was it was still the noise trade days where like you yeah. could, and that was kind of how we broke out. Was like we put an EP on noise trade, and people just shared it. We'll be right back with Eric Marshall of Young Oceans after this. 
Some of you may remember what it was like to listen to a particularly cool radio station years ago, knowing that others were listening in at the same time. Maybe some of your friends from school were listening. Maybe you felt like a loner in the world, but there was something really cool about listening to music together. Plus, every so often, the listeners might get together in person to see a band or something. Well, we might not have a radio station here, but in addition to this podcast and the articles we post at truetunes.com, I curate a playlist on Spotify that gathers around 40 songs each week, from brand new releases to deep, deep cuts, and from across a wide range of genres, including rock, Americana, indie, gospel, blues, sacred music, soul, and more. If you like this show, there's a good chance you'll like that mix. And if you listen to the mix, there's a good chance you'll discover some excellent new artists, remember some stuff you love from the past, and know that you're listening with friends. You can find the mix right there on the front page at truetunes.com or on the show notes page for this episode. But once you follow it yourself, it will live there in your Spotify browser and update automatically, usually on Wednesdays. Seriously, friends, this project is a major part of our plan to curate both music and community here at True Tunes, and it makes a big difference if you take time to follow and listen. And if you have a massive road trip coming up, find the archive list where all previous lists get saved. It now features well over 5,000 songs, and as great as Spotify is for music discovery, please remember to support the artists you love once you discover them there. Thanks. True Tunes is on the road, and we are currently looking at opportunities around the country. These conversations have been a lot of fun, with me bringing a turntable and some records and a guitar, and often finding artists or other special guests to join me. I've also done songwriting workshops, music business clinics, and even some conversations about how we can slow ourselves down and listen to music more carefully, more thoughtfully, and yes, more spiritually. So you can follow all of the action at truetunes.com events. And if you would be interested in having me come speak in your neck of the woods, drop me a line at jjt at truetunes.com and let me know. I'm also excited to be aligning with the Porchlight Network for house shows. Porchlight is a growing network of house show venues around the country, and you can learn more at porchlight.art. So, for house shows, look me up at Porchlight. For schools, venues, churches, or other opportunities, just connect with me directly. And hopefully, I'll be seeing you out there in person. We're back with more of my conversation with Young Ocean's Eric Marshall. How have you seen the Young Ocean's concept and execution evolve over 10 years? What is it today compared to what it was then? Man, um, I think in a lot of ways, nothing's changed. <laughs> like we, I still go back to that original kind of, whatever you want to call it, like rule. It was, it's like the rule of our of our little monastery is you shall not record anything that you won't want to listen to yourself. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, I used to say, and I think it's on our bio somewhere, it was like, when we get done with this record, we want to be able to lay on the floor of the studio for 45 minutes and, and just enjoy it. Yeah. That's still very much my ideal. So what are the things that happen in life for you as an artist that spark growth and push you to try new things, whether that's musically or lyrically? So we we talked earlier. Um, we were talking before this, before we press record about um, the intersection with non-denominational churches of the liturgical movement, and and to kind of what 
degree that has been incorporated in some communities. And I was a part of a community in New York. Um, the pastor that I was working under directly was effectively moving towards an Anglican expression. And he began to really lovingly give me feedback about like, hey, like, as you're planning the service and as you're picking songs, let's keep in mind that this this thing is moving towards a particular focus. In this case, of course, you, you would know this as an Episcopalian. This is moving towards a table experience. The Eucharist is going to be the climax of this service every time. Right. And I found that after years and years of leading worship, like I had to, as a practitioner, as a leader of these of these prayers, had to change everything that I was doing and I was thinking you know, in order to make the songs and the prayers and, and the readings sync up and have that proper arc, I had to begin to adjust to that liturgical format. And it was what for many people can often feel like this really um, restricting concept was the most freeing thing in the world. Right. It was the best thing that ever happened. And right. and as for artists, we learned pretty early on, like when you put certain parameters around this thing, when you when you give yourself certain rules, then magic begins to happen. Right. The second thing that we did was an Advent EP. That's right. It yeah. was, and I, I, I was just beginning, having grown up, you know, all my life with my family, we would do the Advent readings and the Advent candle, and I, I, I certainly was aware that, like, Christmas technically did start until Christmas Day, you know, right on the church calendar. And that was the extent of your liturgical... That was my liturgical... <laughs> you know? Advent. But as I began to lean into this idea of, no, Advent is is basically the winter Lent, you know what I mean? It, um, or, or the fall Lent. It's basically, this is the dark period where, where, we're, where we're forcing ourselves into these rhythms of, of waiting, you know. That really hit me in that season. So I went back to, you know, many of the old prophecies in Isaiah and in the Psalms, uh, the Messianic prophecies, and kind of based a little EP around that idea, and we call it an Advent record. That was kind of the first properly like liturgical-based concept record that we did. And that really introduced us to this whole swath of people out there that were like, ooh, we get that, we want more of that. Right. You know, and right. we we kind of became synonymous with some listeners as like, they're a liturgical band. A liturgical alternative ambient yeah you know post rock right? but they love that word liturgical yeah. that was like a safe place for them gotcha and we we leaned into that more on two records later on the record called suddenly which i don't have the energy to talk about because it was such an exhausting record but basically it's a mass is how i framed it it's it's just a mass from the start start to the end and it was a cr- like incredibly challenging and wonderful to, to work on that like we had the the sequence of that song of those of those songs were in place before we even recorded you know that was the idea it was true concept record i don't know that anything was achieved to be honest like i think there's some some songs that stood out on that record but it was it ended up being just something i when we when we you know quote unquote promoted the record i took a swipe at like kind of explaining to people that hey this is what we're up to so if, if people are really interested in listening and they want to read the liner notes they'll get it but it ended up being again like one of those like it was some parameters that that we put around it on purpose that only we needed to know about you know mm-hmm. that was kind of how it worked out but to back to your thing about how has it changed 
I think over the years what I have done, and this always tends to be like my my habit, is is I get obsessed with something and then I begin to sniff out that other people are obsessed with the same thing and then I say, I don't want anything to do with it anymore. <laughs> I'm done with that, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of am over the liturgical thing currently. That has nothing to do with my faith and my desire for a particular church arc it just just in terms of music and songs i'm in a mode right now where like i'm not i'm not writing from the book of common prayer anymore um because i've i've done it for so long i just i'm trying some different things and so the last record we did it's called your fullness is i i literally set out to write like the most simplistic 100 percent true 100 percent heartfelt but like the most like basic lyrics I could possibly write. Hmm. Didn't try to couch them in, in any kind of ancient language or, f- or phraseology, um, but they're they're almost like child poems. So that's kind of my mode now, is like, I want to be more childlike. of that because of your attempt to become more simple but the songs are definitely more immediate mm-hmm. they, they they grab you um they're more accessible in that way yeah and that song first love is one that to me feels like uh it feels like the kind of song that millions and millions of people should know and be singing and if there was a format for for hits sure. to happen right sure. it's just a it's yeah. kind of like a it's a pop song it's a hit on the moon yeah, you know? yeah <laughs> but yeah, yeah. let's use that song as a way to talk about with some specificity this sure. process sure. tell me about that song and the genesis of it the thinking of it and yeah well, well that song was was actually i brought that to a, to a friend a friend of mine in new york um who's on this other project that i'm a part of and i played him the demo I was like, is this anything? And and he's the one that kind of helped me see, like, the original lyric was, you were always, always my first love. Okay, so me speaking to God. That was what, what, what had originally come up. And actually it was my buddy who was like, I think you need to, like, 
change the orientation? What if it's, I was always your first love? And, and, and I remember thinking, oh, is that, are we allowed to say that? <laughs> so so the, the genesis of it is, is that I don't, I, I can't necessarily lay out um, one scripture that would say, this is this is biblical. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right, yeah. Now, there's a lot of Psalm 139 elements in there, which is like, you knew me uh, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Right. You knew me when is um, before I was in my mother's womb. Right. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, I basically took some some mystical um, liberties to reason out this idea that like, if the Psalms you know if david was writing those things in the spirit and and was and was saying you knew me before i was even matter right before i was atoms there's actually an, an unbelievable amount of like play and precedent there for like sort of metaphysical um imagining imagination right. you know right. so i thought yes this is good like this is this this is there's like a boatload of um beauty and mystery in in the unknowing on this one you Mm -hmm. know so but when i finally started singing that it just broke my heart Mm. to sing that to the lord like to me and that was new territory for me where it gets really emotional from a listener like just my opinion or my my take on it was that to say you were always my first love if you were singing it to god i don't buy it exactly because he wasn't no. Nobody's perfect. No, no. Like there might have been a few moments at a few festivals when I felt that way. Yeah. You know, but really generally in life I struggle to make God my he's first been, love. He's yeah. been our last. Yeah, exactly. It, it would be so untrue. <laughs> it's just so, yeah. it's complete complete exactly. nonsense to say that. Exactly. But that's really how most Christian art is. It's it's bogus propaganda that's like it's aspirational maybe, but it's exactly. not but when you say this whole thing, this whole whatever this is is because you love us. Yeah. Then it is kind of heartbreaking to realize when we fail to live into that and fail to recognize that and fail to participate in that, that's the loss. Yeah. And so what I love about these songs is even though they're simple, each one of them in a way in its simplicity actually leads to something a lot more profound yeah. if you let it. Yeah. Of course, that's assuming people are going to listen at that level. And you yeah. can just listen and enjoy it, and they sound really pleasing. Yes. But that was pretty profound for me when I was like, because I had the f- same first thought. Yeah. Well, I don't know if there's a verse that says that, but well, is this very narcissistic? Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, wait. In but the if beginning, that's true, you know. <laughs> but if that's true, right? won't that change everything right. in this moment or, or this day or this right. life? I get sucked back to songs that are so simple. And songs that say very little, you know, like, I think that's, that's probably a pretty common arc for, for, for songwriters is, is you get more simple as you go. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it is maybe you've already said something three or four different ways and the way to say it better is to say nothing at all. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Right, yeah. um, trusting, trusting your melodies more than you used to or, um, but mostly it's, for me, it's, it's just been life is definitely getting harder and harder as it goes as as my kids grow up and and the one thing i i will not relent on is that like i want to believe everything that i sing because i've worked with plenty of people that 
are okay with not doing that. Right. I don't want to be that person. Yeah. Um, there's just, there's no time for, like, we don't have time for that. Right. So I just keep finding, we were just talking about Thomas Merton. He's got this great line in Seven Story Mountain where he's finally made it to the monastery that he's been trying to get into. He's not sure if he's going to be accepted into the Trappists. But he has his line. He's like, he's there just kind of um, as a guest and he, they're putting him to work cleaning floors and he's cleaning floors with another guy who's a guest hoping to become a monk. He says, and I couldn't, I couldn't stop basically like smiling about the fact that my days of having conversations are over <laughs> <laughs> he's just tired of talking to people right, right. he's tired of small talk right and i read I, I read that and i just cracked up but yeah. like i feel that way sometimes i'm yeah. just like i don't i've said too much in my life already <laughs> i've said way too much i think i knew you We'll have more of my conversation with Eric Marshall of Young Oceans after we roll out the jukebox for a deeper dive into an earlier kind of alternative worship music. revolutionary army of the infant Jesus, who took their name from a fictional terrorist group in a surreal French comedy drama film directed by Louis Buñuel, was a mysterious group to be sure. One of our European readers first told me about them and sent me a copy of their 1987 album The Gift of Tears and I was hooked. They melded Celtic, British, and Neapolitan folk music with modern instrumentation and the kind of samples and found sounds that were then most associated with industrial music. By placing chamber instruments, flutes and strings, alongside synthesizers, and then using eastern scales and drones, the group managed to create a completely unique atmosphere that found favor with fans of everything from New Age music to goth rock.
Lyrically, however, they explored almost exclusively sacred ideas, usually through a somewhat ancient lens. Liturgical references, Latin and other ancient texts, and specific biblical accounts all reinforced a guiding idea that the world was a dark and broken place and it was our job and gift to seek beauty in the bleakness. This concept, that a right appreciation of art and beauty is an essentially theological exercise, is well at home in the Eastern Orthodox tradition the group leaned into so frequently. Their 1991 album, Mirror, brought more of the same with warmer production and engineering and bigger beats. With slightly more African and Middle Eastern sonic references, both in the rhythms and in the horn and guitar sounds, the project took the meditative, contemplative ideas from the debut, sanded off a few of the rougher edges, and took us back to church. One of the standout songs that really turned heads was Le Monde du Silence, forgive my French, for The Silent World. And while I don't speak enough French to understand exactly what they are saying other than The Silent World, I'm pretty sure they're not referencing the famous 1956 underwater documentary film by Jacques Cousteau, although they certainly could be. That film definitely moved me in profoundly spiritual ways the first time I saw it. Thank you. 
although the members of the Rev Army, as they came to be known by fans, remained anonymous until recently. Their very rare live multimedia performances and statements made it clear that, unlike most modern Christian music, they were more concerned about exploring the mysteries, questions, doubts, and even fear of faith than in offering specific answers. I tried to get an interview with the members for the True Tunes magazine back in the early 90s and was flatly refused. They were simply not interested in explaining themselves or their music. This mysteriousness, both in lyric and identity, seemed to leave the door open in all kinds of ways. From believers to skeptics, those interested in plumbing the spiritual depths and those simply looking for a sonic experience, this army welcomed all. And fans of diverse musical genres found their way to this fascinating group. Sadly, one audience that never seemed to embrace them, at least in any great numbers, were American Christian music fans. As far as I can recall, True Tunes was among very few places in the U.S. that sold their music, and I can't recall seeing other magazines feature them or really hearing many people outside of our little underground, including our extended family of friends at and around the Cornerstone Festival, ever even bringing them up. But God was good to me, and he, he let me out of jail, and I promised him if I got out of it, I would serve him, and when I did get out, it was probably month or maybe two months before I ever repented. But when I did repent, I could feel the quickening power that comes with the Holy Ghost, but I didn't have the evidence of speaking in tongues like I had before. And uh, I prayed to God for might near the year and seek the Lord, and, and I thought that he was a fooling with me, and I had never got the power back. I, I, I wondered about the tongues, see, because without without the evidence of speaking in tongues, well, we we ain't got it, see, and that's uh, what I was concerned with. So uh, I prayed, seek God, and, and I couldn't get no peace of mind about it. And of course, I would dance under the power and. and Quickening power would get on me, but <clears throat> thank God, one night it was in a meeting, and there was a young girl there, she was playing the piano, and uh, she uh, came off the platform and crying and went to the altar and started repenting, and the Holy Ghost moved up on me, and, and I went over and laid hands on her. In the music of the revolutionary army of the infant Jesus, Orthodox, Anglican, and Catholic lyrical images floated amidst the darkly resonant tunes in surprisingly effective ways. After releasing two albums and a couple of EPs, though, the band disappeared. In 2013, the French label Infrastition released their complete works on a three-disc collection called After the End. Two years later, the band became more public about the members' identities and released its first new music in 20 years. Beauty Will Save the World, though less industrial than their earlier work, clearly benefits from modern recording technology and an even more sophisticated arsenal of sounds than the group used all those years ago.
turned out that the army was comprised of Dave Seddon, John Egan, and Sue and Paul Boyce, and was joined early on by Leslie Hamson. In 2015, they gave a rare interview to NPR for the Songs We Love series. I'll link to the complete article in the show notes page. But there are a couple of standout quotes that not only knocked me out relative to all of the Rev Army music I have enjoyed for so long, but seem to be highly relevant to my conversation with Eric Marshall of Young Oceans. The NPR writer, Lars Gottrich, says, quote, Faith is a thread that runs through RAIJ, from its striking name to the samples woven into the songs. It's never been something you have shied away from. Do you consider this sacred music? End quote. To which the band replies, and again I quote, We have always been concerned with the sacred, or, perhaps more accurately, the loss of the sacred. We are searching for its echoes and traces, which are scattered and hidden in surprising and forgotten places. We have spoken in the past about the theology of icons in the Eastern Church. They are fragments of a restored creation, elements of nature that have been transfigured to create images of heavenly glory. We are not claiming that our music in any way realizes this ideal, but it is an idea that has influenced us almost from the inception of RAIJ. It has been an even more explicit inspiration for this album and its title, Beauty Will Save the World, which is a quote from Dostoevsky, a writer steeped in the Orthodox tradition. In the Western tradition, art is illustrative and beauty is an aesthetic concept, whereas to the Eastern Church, art is sacramental and beauty is the pursuit of divine truth. So, questions about the sacred and the beautiful necessarily converge. End quote. What's more, the band has continued to write and record, releasing two albums in 2020, Nocturnes and Songs of Yearning, which explore loss and longing from different perspectives and pull the group's musical palette into new, sometimes downright accessible territory. that's going to have to do it for this installment of the jukebox. Who knows? Maybe someday the members of the Rev Army will agree to an audio interview. Until then, if you are not familiar with their work, visit revolutionaryarmyoftheinfantjesus.bandcamp.com and check it out. We'll also give you a link on the show notes page so you don't have to type out that URL. I'm so glad their music is available again as just one more fascinating chapter in the ever-evolving story of imaginative, ancient future, alternative Jesus music. Speaking of which, 
Let's get back to my conversation with Eric Marshall of Young Oceans. would you say is your concept of worship and then your concept of how music factors into that and has that evolved over the years yeah of course one of the reasons i was so excited at the idea of pursuing writing these these type of songs is that i've never really felt that near to god in in corporate singing Hmm. at least that was my experience growing up some people feel the closeness of God in among other people, you know, in fellowship or in, you know, breaking bread. Some people experience it literally in singing or in, or in corporate prayer. Others feel it in solitude or in nature. Um, for me, solitude and nature are absolutely where I just sense the nearness and the, and the, and the, the glory of God. But I've always been... Um, moved by melody, by Western beautiful chords, and you know, like I remember feeling as a kid being really moved by like fifties chord progressions, like like doo-wop. Yeah, just it's emotional. Right. The first movie I ever saw in the theater was Back to the Future, and hearing those, you know, those, that great scene where they're playing Earth Angel, Earth yeah. Angel. Will you be mine? I mean, like that, that is still the pinnacle of like Western pop, beautiful melody for me, that kind okay. of stuff. So like, I've always been really, really knocked off my feet by beautiful music. But growing up in the, ch- in the church, we'd all get together to pray to God, to, to read the word, to experience one another, and to do all the wonderful things that we do when we gather as, as confessing Christians. But the music sucked. <laughs> it didn't. It was just right. perfunctory. It was. It right. was. It was. And now, and now we sing the great old hymn, "Praise the Lord, ye heavens." You know how what, great that. What kind art. of church was this that you grew up in? Well, see, I had lots of different experiences. Okay. It wasn't one thing. We moved all all my life. Uh, my dad worked for the evangelist Billy Graham. One of the really great results of that is that we were in a different city every year for twelve years. Oh wow. But we always plugged in t- into a little church immediately, and it was usually whatever was closest. Hmm. So we had experiences, um, like when we lived in Scotland, we went to a Church of Scotland community. When we lived in Paris, we, we went to um, uh, like an international English-speaking 
service that met at a local Catholic church. I don't remember what it was. Um, and then when we, we often, when we were in the States, experienced like some hyper-charismatic community. <laughs> so we, but somehow in all of that, you just weren't experiencing music that was excellent. It's not that. It's just, it's just that for me, believe me, I, I have great respect for the, for the form and the, and the pursuit. And, and in some ways, I think that, that it's probably a, a, a really good and holy thing that we can't crack the code. Well, it's also probably worth considering that music is hard to do at an excellent level. So It's just hard no matter how you cut it. Right. Yeah. So most, you know, like you could pick almost any hymn, yep. not any hymn. But the ones that have really survived, you know, you come that found of everybody. Yeah, yeah. So be thou my vision. You could hear that. You could hear "Be Thou My Vision" done badly in a yep. perfunctory, droney, yep. like everybody sounds miserable and they want to yep. they want to jump off a cliff. Or I've heard it done in just sublime. It, it brings yep. me to tears. Yeah. And so some of that is probably when we are comparing the execution yeah. of the song to how we are consuming music. The rest of the week, we're getting to listen to the best produced, whatever we love, music, whatever yeah. records we have or CDs we have. And so then we go to church and it's like, oh, we have to listen to these people that are just normal pedestrians, just singing songs. And the guy who's or woman who's hired to or maybe volunteering, volunteering to sure. playing the piano, you know, like the our, our uh, comparisons, our standards are probably unfortunately altered by our consumerist uh lingering but still your statement is is valid because you were saying that your experience was the music was not inspiring you to worship so so it wasn't correct in inspiring you at all and so you were motivated to do something that you thought would would repair that Regardless which of what the super, motivation was, which is kind of like so narcissistic and and, and absurd in so many ways, and I, I'm aware of that. Like, it, I don't, I, I don't, I think I'd push back a little bit. I don't know that that's absurd. I think that's the same stuff that moved John Wesley to write his songs and Martin Luther. To write, I mean, any artist is going to be inspired because there's something missing that they feel like they're supposed to offer into the world. I think that's all it was. Yeah. I, I, I don't I, think I, that's narcissism. I, yeah. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> you beat yourself up a little bit, <laughs> right. but what what is the con? Like, what do you think worship is supposed to be and supposed to accomplish for us? The Psalms say, "Worship the Lord in reverence and awe." Those two things, I think, say it all. What does it mean? We all know when something's irreverent. We not we not we may not be able to explain why, or write out why. You know. When you hear the the rock show band, like the 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 CCM rock show, there's a moment at which it become it to me it becomes irreverent, and that's different for everybody. You know, um, right now the church is doing pretty good at the awe thing, or at least they're shooting for the awe thing. But often, awe, the more you sort of head toward that pole, you lose the reverence. <laughs> oh, so yeah, I, I, in my experience like awe tends to mean in our day and age more holy spirit more reverb more <laughs> like more mystery more uh, more kind of nuance i don't know hmm. uh, perhaps reverence i think in my mind has often meant theologically sound um you're not drawing attention to yourself there's a certain humility 
I've I've been in in church gatherings where there's where there's a worship leader, a team of worship leaders, where I've remarked afterward to a friend or to my wife, like, "Wow, I that was amazing because I didn't even think about them at all. Mm-hmm. I didn't even think about that that person that was leading us in this in these prayers." To me, that's a successful thing. Now, other people would, would, would argue differently. You know, I, I used to have a friend that said, God uses people. He used Moses. He did, Moses didn't want to be, but you know what I mean? But God uses people to, you know, and I'm like, yeah, okay, okay. But there's a point at which we have choices when it comes to um, the being in groups to draw attention to ourselves or to not. And any person that's ever been on a stage knows that moment when you go too far. Yeah. Particularly uh, uh, if you're there in, in some kind of church context. But for me, you said it right at the top of this. Like, I correct people all the time and I drive people crazy. But when someone says, yeah, I went to church this weekend. The worship was amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'll be like, so like the whole, you mean like the church service was amazing? The worship service? No, the music. Right. Oh, I see. I see. That drives me crazy. Yeah. And I think because I'm so passionate about music, I get annoyed when people use it as this kind of utilitarian jello shot. You know what I mean? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, oh, right, right. yeah. It helped the vodka God, go down God shot. Right, you know what yeah, I mean? It's like, right. why? Because it was loud? Like, Or I, because it was quiet. Or, or quiet. Because, yeah, I, right. like, like, this is why I kind of get to why it's, I think, useful for us to talk about something mm-hmm. like this. Um, a truly historically orthodox understanding of what worship is is our entire lives lived out Absolutely. under the gaze of god yeah. and so a worship service would would really be understood historically again i think as a time set aside where the church could serve us help us refocus our lives to reorient our lives around the worship of god yeah and when you when you're talking earlier about the the way that liturgical boundaries helped you refocus that that is a good example the liturgy forces us to cover all of that it forces us to cover confession yep. and absolution it forces us to cover prayer and scripture and old testament new testament and epistles. you can't start with jesus is on the cross it's not, <laughs> right. that's not how the story starts right right i mean mike cosper's book rhythms of grace yeah. changed everything for me See, we have to tell the story. The whole we have to tell the whole story every time. Right. That doesn't mean it's it's boring, but you've never. You'd, I tell my kids this. I talk to my kids about this because I'm like, hey guys, this is important. You would never go and see a movie, and and start with the end fight scene. Right. No way. You you would all know that that's not how that that this is a bad movie. Right. But why do we allow that in church? Literally, I, last time I went to to mega church to to, to check out. Right out of the gates. When you died on the, you know, and I'm saved. It's like, no, no, I'm not there yet. I'm just not there yet. I'm so sorry. Like, I'm amazed that people seemingly go there. or I don't know if they're there or they go there with with the leader, but like it's short-circuiting the most precious story that we have to tell. And and we're paying the price for it in our culture. Well, and it, it also reveals that music is used for a lot of stuff in our culture. Yeah. And so when the church is using it as uh, a warm-up for the p- 
pastor to speak or a way to get our attention. I even remember sometimes thinking, well, this is just a way for me to get my heart in the right place so that I can receive the teaching. Sure. And, 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 you know, that's not a bad thing in and of itself. But if, if then you start to say, well, then that's what worship is, you're just completely yeah. missing the point that... Just, just something to prime the pump. Right. That yeah. worship is, is really something much, much bigger and more yeah. devastating yeah. than that. We have to become mindful of of all of these things. You know, mm-hmm. the, the the media is the message, and and yeah. it's going to reinforce all of those things. And so, um, what I appreciate about how your music has helped me, even though I've never sung one of your songs congregationally, I've never been at a church that's done one of your songs, but I can cue up your records when I'm going for a run or going for a walk or in the morning getting ready for work. And they can cause me to personally reflect mm. and think. And and uh, there's a worshipful, spiritual, sacramental nature to that. As a younger generation of artists now are coming up, even younger than you. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, everybody's younger than me. But I mean, even younger than you. Oh, yeah. And like we just talked to you know, Beach Chapel and yep. Lovekin and, and this whole new scene. Yep. They're coming up where their kind of music, alternative, indie whatever we want to call it is now completely uh normalized and churches are going to use that kind of music to draw people in but are they really understanding and teaching and modeling a full comprehensive understanding of what worship is beyond music Mm -hmm. and then teaching that to the artists so that artists can understand how to artfully use worship or music in the service of worship as opposed to uh, the way we just kind of will unconsciously take on the, the forms and habits of the culture around us. Yeah. And, and we end up accidentally using music to minimize worship. kind of the challenge what would you have to say to the younger artists that are coming up you know the beach chapels and the, the yeah. people that are doing this that are 10 12 15 20 years behind you well, i listened to that podcast and I would, those those guys absolutely blow my mind uh, particularly Stephen lovekin I, i've not met met the beach chapel guy um but Stephen reached out to me and i was just was so <laughs> t- to use a silly word blessed by his charity towards me and his kindness he reached out to me and wanted to just get me involved with the one big one big family world or just kind of like connect me and i've been on some zoom calls with them but just he just wanted to just tell me that he loved my music and that i've been an influence i'm like wow i feel so old thank you um but 
I, he, I, I just, I just want to say like, he's modeling brotherly love yeah, yeah. in this space. And that's something I've never, ever seen in right. the Christian music space. So like, that's some seriously good evolution. I don't know how that happened. Like that's, an, I think the, uh, like a really good result of the new media that we have easy access to dis- distribution, like, and just his calling seems to just be, he's a connector and, and he just loves people, you know, like it's so rare. Mm-hmm. So I hugely commend him and, and his world that, that he's kind of just pushing. Like I mentioned earlier, like I've always felt like a bit of a loner in this space. Um, I probably would feel that in whatever industry I was in. It just tends to be my my type, um, kind of solitude. But when I listen to them, them chatting, sometimes it's hard for me to understand, and everybody's different on this spectrum. I really look at myself as... as like I, I embody two different ideas. Like I have, there's me as a worship leader. If if I were to be asked to go lead somewhere this Sunday, I'm not going in as the dude from Young Oceans necessarily. Um, sometimes you're in a context where they want you to, the church is going to want you to play a song or two, or or maybe they want us as a band. But like leading worship fundamentally has nothing to do with Young Oceans for me at the start. I might use some of my songs. The reason I say that is like I'm not sh- I'm not always clear these days what some of the younger guys are going for, and that's actually a, okay. That's probably a really good thing, like because there's definitely been a lot of um, a lot of focus in the last ten years, especially like CCM music is synonymous with what get pl- what's get gets played on Sundays in churches. Mm. You know, as the worship scene has taken over the the airwaves, which is cool i mean whatever like i'm not saying anything there's nothing bad to be said about that right. but when 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 i was growing up ccm music was message music it was it was it was the dc talk stuff where it was like you were never good there was no question in anybody's mind whether that was going to be sung on sunday or not <laughs> right, it right, wasn't right and that was nobody's goal right but now um i mean i've been in co-writes in in nashville where literally people are going our goal is to get other churches to sing the song. And you know why they're doing that is because they want to make money from CCLI. Right. Because because suddenly church music is the new radio, like publishing, res- like it's all just so convoluted right. to me. And I, th- I guess what I would say to answer your question is like all of it has to be thrown out. Every single bit of that has to be thrown out. If you're called to be a worship leader, either indefinitely or this weekend and you're a musician I'll, I'll tell you this the best advice i ever got i was i had taken a new role as a music director worship leader at a at one of our parishes in brooklyn and there was one of the older elders was a real was a real kind of mystic spirit-filled guy and i didn't know him very well um but he he was kind of one of those guys you meet and you're kind of like Man, i think he kind of knows me <laughs> and then somehow it was scary <laughs> And he came up to me after my first time leading on one of the Sundays, and he says, "Hey, I, I think I have a, a word for you if if you're open to it, a word from the Lord." I was like, "Yeah, man, hit me with it." And I got out like my notebook, you know, <laughs> to write down whatever he's going to say. And he says, "Love these people." Wow. I was like, "Is, is that it? Is that the word?" He's like, "Yeah, that that's the word." And he like said it through tears. Like he oh, was man. like, it would really, and I, 
I began tearing up because I realized, yes, this, this is all I needed to hear. That is my calling mm. as this prayer leader. Wow. Am I loving these people here in front of me, whether it be 50 or 5,000? And um, to my shame, what I, what, what I realized in reflection was that had not been at all what I was preparing to do. Right. I, I had been preparing in my mind, and, and quite literally, to maybe wow these people, to show them a thing or two, <laughs> if you will, <laughs> right. to correct to lead even yeah and my calling though was to love them mm. so th I th that's my advice for people like I, that's not my word that was a word given to me but that's universal yeah i think we all know that are we loving our local community or are we trying to get a bit of a two-for-one deal where yeah yeah we you know we serve this these people over here but but, but don't worry, we're being simulcast and, and thrown to the ends of the earth. And we also have an international ministry here. Right, right, it's right. like, nah, I don't know about that. Right. I'm not sure that's what, what church is. <laughs> right. Like, by all means, let, let the music business do that. But I'm not sure that that's where church is in its sweet spot. How could I not be? Without you by my side mm. How could I know joy my love How could I see the light Several of the songs on the latest Young Oceans project, we talked about the simplicity of some of those lyrics, but also this uh, Color Vault, which you said is that's the worship team from the church. That is that kind of going back to kind of roots in a way, working with the actual worship band. Well, of one the church? of the guys is from our old community, but it's a different church altogether. Okay, up in New York, it's called Lower Manhattan Community Church, and they've basically sponsored this artist collective that they're calling Color Vault, and I'm one of a handful of writers. Right. And listening to some of those songs, songs like Carry Me Along, oh, man. It's so simple again, <laughs> but the implications are pretty devastating. If we really 
allow the spirit to carry us along, we're not going to end up in the same place where we started. Yeah. What's some of the evidence that we've actually worshipped? Ooh, that's great. Is there is does it look like something? Or should should we look or or be different after we have worshipped? Yeah, I mean, this is what this is why I'm I'm constantly reading Catholics because <laughs> they talk about right. charity, yeah. and they talk about disappearing. The monk Catholic monks, the whole goal was to disappear. Gosh, it's just so un-American, you know? I constantly struggle with this. Like, am I being changed? That was my question when I when we did that record suddenly. Like, is, am, am I actually being formed or reformed? This goes back to Bible Bible school, like like growing in the image, growing in the likeness of God. You know, like growing in the in the the fruit of the spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, would my wife be able to say to you that Eric's actually becoming a more gentle person as time goes? Gosh, I, I don't know that she'd be able to say that. It's one of the one of the things that I really am. I'm not going to say worry, but I really concerns me about the state of our our worship music. That's in quotes. I just quoted. <laughs> is is it just is it is it just like a, another hit, like a, another dopamine hit? You know, and and the, what we all know about a dopamine hit is the only thing it leads to is the desire for another dopamine hit. Mm-hmm. People make me really nervous when they tell me they listen to worship music all day long. Like I don't really. And yeah, when are you doing anything? Like, well, yeah, like like you <laughs> right. can't. Right. Do you take any breaks for meals or like, 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 do you listen to anything that like maybe, gosh, makes you think, you know what I mean? I, I, I just think that like, we're always in danger of taking something good and just living there and never asking, is this best right now? Well, and, and what did Peter get when he suggested, oh, let's, Let's stop here. We don't need to go to Jerusalem. Let's just pitch our tents here. What did Jesus say to him? Satan. Get thee behind me, Let's Satan. Call him Satan. <laughs> right. It's you, like, right. I cannot not think about Amos 5. To me, that's, that's like a, a, a chapter that every worship leader should be memorizing practically. Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking here we have this very specific passage of a prophet warning us mm-hmm. Uh, about worship that is done outside of the context of a life that's actually being transformed, whether that life is individual or communal. Mm. And Mm. I think if our worship is not causing us, moving us, making us people that are moved towards righteousness, which is going to involve all of the other things that he led up to in this passage, it's, it's, care for the poor it's care for you know it doesn't mean that that's all it is it's not like we're gonna we're going to earn our place in heaven by doing good works that's not what it's saying but it's it is i think saying that if our worship is not changing us i don't know that we're worshiping i think we're being entertained by something with christian words in it so i have this theory what you're saying is is just devastating right is it's devastating to consider the implications of and I think we can say we because we have to, because yeah. we are all, we're in this mess together. But I have this theory that I've been sharing with some friends that I'm afraid that these days worship, experiencing corporate worship is is this sort of avatar thing. 
mm. where what you have on stage is the idealized avatar of who we in the audience all wish we could be. Oh, wow. They're often young, talented, energetic, attractive. charismatic, attractive. There's usually a blonde right. girl with a hat. Right. You know what I mean? We all want the hat, like a felt hat thing. Um, there's this sense in our in the age of the image, in the age of the reality star. Oh, and, and quite often they're they're being auto-tuned on the fly. Right. Um, which I think is partly just a really stupid meaning like thing that means nothing and also i think it's hugely important the idea that we would try to perfect our worship <laughs> um so you have these beautiful people singing perfectly in tune with perfect reverb and smoke and lights and it's a show and the the music is so darn loud that you can't hear the congregation singing anyway right what is that other than us projecting ourselves onto that person so I think, I think we're in a really dangerous spot, to be honest. And technology has gotten us there, and the fact that someone can share something on Instagram today, and instantly someone over in Sri Lanka can be mimicking that style and that outfit and that way of being, we're becoming the same, you know what I mean, but being dumbed down. Like, it's just grievous to me. Um, and and I I often, like... I, I asked this really daunting question of like, am I a part of it? Anyway, that's one of the theories that, that kind of haunts me that I have is like, is have we gotten hooked on this idea that someone else is actually going to be doing the pursuing on our behalf? Which when you think about it, goes right back to the age of, of the priest. goes right back to old school Judaism and what you would call apathetic catholicism which is i don't know the priest is doing all the work for me and and he's he's the avatar up there like going through all the motions and i'm just linking into it mm-hmm. that is not what jesus invited us to and nor is that really what the mass was supposed and to be in the first place exactly it just it, it got convoluted over time it, right. it, got, it got and everything gets distorted over time you know what i mean right. it's like i'm afraid that that's what we're doing now yeah. and music has become a sacrament it was never meant to be a sacrament like as important as music is, or uh, it's not even as important as much as a gift as it is, as as universally haunting and impactful as music can be. I don't think it's actually technically a sacrament of the church, <laughs> right. not even close to. Right. But but when it's the thing that you that is your main focus, it's either music or preaching in the day in 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 our age of um, what we might call. Revivalism essentially is what we is, is basically what non-denominational culture is like revivalist culture. The preaching, but more often than not now, I, the music is the is the de facto sacrament. And I just think when you put undue pressure on something that wasn't meant to hold it, you're, you're in trouble. So I ask you one thing.
feel like when we were using music, loud music, for instance, to get people's attention and shock them into thinking about something, mm-hmm. you know, that's one thing. When we're looking 30, 40 years down the road and we're seeing some of the fruits of this shift in the church, I'm disturbed. It's different when when we're looking now and saying, boy, is this worship changing people? Is mm-hmm. it bringing us into a deeper level of discernment, uh, a more profile? Is the church known by its love that it has, mm-hmm. you know, like Jesus promised that it would be or yeah. not? And it feels to me that that something has been is being lost and being abdicated yeah. in that process. Now, by the same token, there's still the potential when individuals choose to kind of wake up and and re-engage. It's not the music's fault. It's the way it's being used. Yeah, it's true. The music there's nothing is- about any genre or any note or anything like that that's particularly sacred or holy no, it's, it's neutral just the way we're it's using neutral it. it's the people right. it, it's it's us right it's always us so you know i guess the question is kind of where do we where do we go you know that what what can we do how can we use this music or the tools of conversation when it comes to social media to stem that tide and and turn things around you know well i i mean this is kind of looping back to a little bit of history of how I got I I personally got called into this little world and I used to complain to my wife constantly about I complain about the music on Sundays wherever we were going and and after years of her listening to that literally <laughs> this is so not like her but she just freaked out one day she's like I'm so sick of hearing you complain either do something about it or shut up right that was my basically my uh, introduction into trying to write worship music and so. In, and I say this, whatever is like the lower, like even lower than humility, like with trepidation. <laughs> humiliation. Uh, yeah, humiliation. <laughs> like I, I, I say this because I don't, I, I don't have to, I don't claim to have figured anything out. I've been humbled in this process. Um, but I will say, if my part in this is to just, inspire even a few artists along the way or like you know steven was like yeah i I listened to young oceans was one of the first you know records i heard in high school that wanted me i was like whoa Mm -hmm. that's that broke my heart like like in the best way that someone that another artist out there that's just gonna you know and each generation's gonna be inspired and pulled and and motivated and called to to live in the tradition of the psalmist and and to call upon God and to and to worship Him only and if I've played some role of being almost like like a couture designer like no one's ever gonna wear <laughs> that stuff no one's gonna wear the plastic bag on their head you know what I mean in in that year's line um, but it might inspire something more practical that's fresher and truer that year you know me like then i've actually come to realize that that could be the most beautiful calling Hmm. ever because i don't have any desire to get out there and try to mix it up with the people that are being really successful in in that space and and try to compete competing is not something that's on my radar right i don't even know what that is you know um but uh 
you've got a role to play now like both as a continuing artist in your own you've got a lot more songs to write and as a yeah. mentor and advisor to to these the younger generation so and i yeah. think that um absent some warnings and some uh admonition it's going to be pretty easy for for younger especially younger people but really anybody when you get the validation when you get attention when you get an opportunity i mean when i was a kid all, all it was was a, a stage and a, a chance to play yeah but uh I think that having this dialogue for whoever has ears to hear it mm. and say, if our worship is not changing us to be more Christ-like, then it's not actually worship. Okay. Um, and I don't know that we have time for just entertainment anymore. No. Um, and frankly, what a lot of us have called church has essentially been entertainment, and we can see the result of what that's done. You know, um, and it's it's time to pull the fire alarms and get out of the theater. Yeah, exa- <laughs> yeah. exactly. And that's <laughs> so. that's what has been happening generation after generation. Right. That we have to. I mean, I love David Dark. He's got this wonderful book. I'm sure you know of the, the sacredness of questioning everything. Yeah, that's basically his premise. Is like, have you let something sort of calcify in your spiritual being that needs to be broken up? so that you can move on, you know, continuing to be reborn. Like, um, that's our work yeah. and it's hard. And, and, and it's just, it's the, it's that narrow road thing. Like it's, this isn't about who's saved or who's not necessarily, it, but it's about like, are we becoming more sanctified? You know, gosh, it's daunting. Well, thanks for taking so much time with us. And Absolutely. I look man. forward to hearing what's next. Do you have another young ocean project in development now? Yes. Um, so we're doing, we did something called Voices, and I called it Volume 1, and which I wish I hadn't of because it necessitates a Volume 2. <laughs> but we're working in Volume 2 currently. So it's, that's where you take your songs and have other artists kind of collaborate with you on reworks of those? Exactly. So I have basically other, I, I go and find incredible singers that can sing much better than me and ask them, humbly ask them to sing my, my tunes. <laughs> So we're we're about seventy five percent done with that, and it's awesome. it'll be coming out in the spring. Well, thank you, sir. Thanks, John. Oh, sweet spirit, carry me along. Oh, sweet spirit, carry me along. To my lips are clean, and my mind can see. inviting me into your space and for being so generous and open with us today. And as I pull out my soapbox to wrap this up, I don't have much to add to what we've already said here. So instead, I think I'll read that section from Amos that we referenced during our conversation. 
This is from the fifth chapter of Amos, and just for a bit of context here, although Amos is often classified as one of the minor prophets, and this book shows up later in your Bible, he was actually an older contemporary of Hosea and Isaiah, and this book is likely the first book of prophecy given to the people of Israel, so nothing minor about that. Also, just to keep the musical thread going, scholars have recognized that Amos quotes several lines from a hymn throughout his book, including verses 8 and 9 of the passage I'm about to read, the stuff about Pleiades and Orion. So, we can see that hymns, that is, songs of worship, have been used in some pretty radical ways since the very beginning of this story. Anyway, here we have Amos, chapter 5, verses 4 through 24 from the New Living Translation. A call to repentance. Now this is what the Lord says to the family of Israel. Come back to me and live. Don't worship at the pagan altars of Bethel. Don't go to the shrines at Gilgal or Beersheba. For the people of Gilgal will be dragged off into exile, and the people of Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Come back to the Lord and live. Otherwise, he will roar through Israel like a fire, devouring you completely. Your gods in Bethel won't be able to quench the flames. You twist justice, making it a bitter pill for the oppressed. You treat the righteous like dirt. It is the Lord who created the stars, the Pleiades and Orion. He turns darkness into morning and day into night. He draws up water from the oceans and pours it down as rain on the land. The Lord is his name. With blinding speed and power, he destroys the strong, crushing all their defenses. How you hate honest judges. How you despise people who tell the truth. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. Therefore, though you build beautiful stone houses, you will never live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you will never drink wine from them. For I know the vast number of your sins and the depth of your rebellions. You oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. So those who are smart keep their mouths shut, for it is an evil time. Do what is good and run from evil so that you may live. Then the Lord God of heaven's armies will be your helper, just as you have claimed hate evil and love what is good. Turn your courts into true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy on the remnant of his people. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God of heaven's armies says. There will be crying in all the public squares and mourning in every street. Call for the farmers to weep with you and summon professional mourners to wail. There will be wailing in every vineyard, for I will destroy them all, says the Lord. What sorrow awaits you who say, if only the day of the Lord were here? You have no idea what you are wishing for. That day will bring darkness, not light. In that day you will be like a man who runs from a lion only to meet a bear. Escaping from the bear, he leans his hand against a wall in his house, and he's bitten by a snake. Yes. The day of the Lord will be dark and hopeless, without a ray of joy or hope. I hate 
all of your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all of your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. The Word of the Lord. That's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and for telling your friends about us. If you've left us a review and a rating at Apple and wherever else you can, thanks. If you've signed up on our mailing list, followed our weekly Spotify mix, followed our Facebook page at TrueTunesNow, and found me on Twitter at John J. Thompson or Instagram at TheOnlyJJT, thank you. It seems really trivial, but those follows and reviews and ratings definitely help keep this whole thing going. Thanks to Eric Marshall for his time and giving us so much great music for this episode. You can find a full list of all of the songs we used on the show notes page and make sure to find his music at youngoceans.com. Special thanks to my co-producer, engineer, proofreader, confidant, and chief enabler, Bruce A. Brown, and to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for our killer theme song. And a huge thanks to our Patreon backers. Seriously, thank you all so much. The contents of the podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at jjt at truetunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time. Let's think about that word that was given to Eric. Do we love the people we are called to serve? Let's live and move and have our being as if love is real, is here, and is both calling us to something important and empowering us to do it. May the songs we sing be a sweet, sweet sound. Peace. Sure. Uh, <laughs> can we take a quick break? Oh, yeah, yeah. Can we, yeah. Pee break? Can we say that in the mic? We shall.